So no worries. I know that we're a little bit later into the service. It's been planned, or we won't be here all morning. Um, all right, let's start out with a quick activity, actually, if you so care to try it. Uh, this supposedly is supposed to be something that the human body cannot do. So we'll see if there's any masters here. So hold up your hands like this. And tr try to bend your pinky without moving any other fingers. So bend them straight down. It's interesting you can't. Did anybody? I almost did it once. You notice how your ring finger goes with it. You can't do it just on its own. That's interesting, right? There you go. That'll keep you entertained for later. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, reading something like the book of Judges or reading the commands of God, you, you get at the Judges and you see the people just start going crazy, like not listening to the Lord, seeking what's right in their own eyes. And there's something rightly that happens in us that says, oh, I don't want to be like that. I, I, I want to follow the Lord. I want to obey the Lord. But we want to be careful as we read uh, these encounters that we don't begin to just start, start yelling at our hearts and saying, don't be like them, because that's not going to help us. It will be like trying to tell your pinky to move without moving the ring finger. It just doesn't work. And so we want to be careful to make sure we're reading this and let the motivation of the author also move us towards that. Because make no mistake, I do think that we're supposed to read an encounter like this and, and seek to, to pursue holiness. It's just a matter of how we're motivating ourselves. Hopefully we'll see that as we think through this uh, passage. Uh, we actually have here uh, perhaps the easiest passage in the whole book as we go through it in terms of just organization. It's just five verses, quite simple. At the same time, uh, it might be one of the most difficult in terms of what do we, what do, we do with this? In fact, if we took a poll, my, my guess is, uh, in, like coming into the book, uh, what judges all of us could name that have narratives about them, I, it's probable that very few people would ever name Othniel as a judge from the book of Judges. Common names that would come to our mind would be Samson, Gideon, Deborah and Barak, maybe even Jephthah, probably Ehud, killing the king. And then Othniel. But interestingly, Othniel is probably the one with the best character. He is probably the, the, the most godly of all the judges. We don't know that for sure, but the author doesn't, he doesn't spend any time telling us anything wrong with Othniel. And he probably brought the most dramatic rescue to God's people. This country that had been oppressing Israel, Kushan Rishathaim, his, his, his name Rishathaim means doubly wicked. So that, that's just interesting. But the, the thing is, the, the author spends very little time here. There, there's no exciting narrative, and that's why we so quickly breeze over it, which can make it difficult. What do we do with this? How is this story meant to land on us? There's no fireworks, no pizzazz, and so we just move on. And so we want to think through this today, oh, just we'd work through the story, what's the author's point, but then also be asking, how, how is it meant to land on us? How is it meant to function in the heart of the believer. 
so we obviously, or maybe not obviously, but uh, remind us, we're in a now transition time of the book. So we've gone through the, you remember the author has two introductions. First he talks about the, the campaign, uh, the military campaign coming in to take occupation of the land and how that failed. Chapter 2 through 3, 6 tells us why it failed, at least theologically why it failed, uh, because of the sin of the people. And we saw last week the cycles that the people get into. First they, they do evil in the sight of God, then God hands them over to their enemies, then they cry out to God, and then God raises up a rescuer. Now that was in chapter 2, generally speaking. That's just big picture is what he's doing in chapter 2. Now 3-7, all the way through chapter 16, he's actually going to take this onto the ground. Take the cycle into the people of Israel and to a judge. And here's our first narrative being Othniel. And you see verse 7 starts out that exact way. And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now setting wise, that, that's going to help us see, okay, we're now we're into a new narrative. We're going to see that six more times throughout the book. Or five more times after this. Now if you go down, uh, just so we see his name, Othniel. Uh, the son of Kenaz there in verse 9 when he's introduced. That gives us our timeline. Uh, we're told here that Othniel was the son of Caleb's younger brother, which makes Othniel the nephew of Caleb. Okay, so remember Caleb and Joshua were the two good spies when the people of Israel were, were going to spy out the land, the promised land, after they came out of Egypt. Right? Joshua and Caleb were the two good spies who said, we, we can go in and take over the land. Yes, the people are strong, but we can go in. Now, uh, you remember, all that generation, uh, except for Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness. So they went for 40 years traveling through the wilderness, and Caleb and Joshua alone, who were 20 years and older, were allowed to enter into the land. Now, Caleb, at some point, had a younger brother who had a son, who is Othniel. So that just, just timeline-wise timeline puts us as one generation after Joshua and Caleb died. Okay, so this is right after they're all dead, presumably. Okay, just so we have the timeline. And let's see how it went. The people did, verse 7, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Well, that didn't take long. <laughs> they forgot the Lord their God. Now, the author, as much as detail as he doesn't give us throughout this narrative, uh, one thing that we should note is this is the only time in the whole book that he uses this word for forgot. He forgot the Lord. Now, oftentimes when we use, when we use the word forget, we're talking about this sort of accidental, right, a kind of a a brain lapse, right? So maybe, I mean, this might happen today. I'll be talking with someone and we'll say, hey, let's, uh, hey, I'll text you later. We'll set up a, a time for, to grab coffee. And you know what? I forget the text. It's, it's not intentional. It's not because I don't like that person. It's just, it, it didn't trigger in my brain, right? It's, it's accidental. Or you think back to your childhood. There's probably just things that, for, for whatever reason, you think, I, I don't know why, I can't remember that. It just slipped my brain. I can't remember. That's oftentimes how we, th how we talk about forgetting, uh, but that's not theologically how, how this is being used. Because even in our day, you might use the idea of forgetting with an active sense. 
No, I'm intentionally. It's not that I, I physically or just my brain, neurologically, I can't remember the facts. I'm not going to let them actually influence me. So a man is at work, he's married, and there's a coworker that he's attractive to. Attracted to, so he, he begins to flirt with her. And a couple weeks into this, uh, he decides he's going to ask her out on, for lunch to try to get to know each other. And one of, his, one of his buddies at work says, dude, what are you doing? You're married. You shouldn't be doing that. And he's like, ah, forget about her. It'll be fine. Now, he knows he's married, right? And, and his buddy knows he's married. He's not actually saying, like, like you're not going to know that. Just, like, don't let that influence where we're going. Right? This, this is the way this is being used here, that they forgot the Lord. In fact, at the end of, this, at the end of the book, there's two encounters, if you remember. There's two conclusions. Uh, both of them happen at the exact same time period because we have Moses' grandson and we have Aaron's grandson, both uh, involved in both of those stories. And if you remember those stories, some gruesome things are happening. Okay, so they're already totally choosing their own way. Specifically here, to serve the Baals and the Asheroth. Now, Kirk touched on this last week a little bit. The, the Baals are, uh, this is the idea of fertility, the god of fertility. So making sure that if you want good crops, if you want to have babies, if you want to have a lot of herds, you go and you worship the Baals. And you, ha- you have to do these, these rituals to make sure that Baal is, is feeling secure and satisfied, and then he'll make sure to provide the, the fertility. Right? Now, Asherah, or the Ashereth, uh, would have been one of his, you know, this, we're talking about fa- false gods here, one of, his, one of his wives or one of the ones that he runs around with. And uh, in the rituals, then, would be to have temple prostitution. And you go, you have these, like, orgy things at the temple in hopes that Baal and Asherah would see it, and that would help them kind of make sure that they make sure fertility happens in the land. And the people of Israel are getting wrapped up into this. And the other thing they do is they'll offer their children as burnt offerings, and the people of Israel are already getting involved in this type of stuff. Now, one of the major red flags that should go on is not only do you see that, but Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, if you remember, Moses on the, on the other side of the Jordan, the people are just about to cross over to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy 8 is the primary one where he, he's, he's talking to the people of Israel and says, now when you go into the land and you eat plenty and you have many herds, and you have many children, and you multiply, and you multiply, and you multiply. Don't let your heart be puffed up. And then forget the Lord. Again, not cognitively, but then he says, so that you're not puffed up, thinking that your own hand has done this. So then you think something's good about yourself. And you just start like mixing things. And then, oh yeah, I guess we can, we can, we can enjoy these things with the Baals, and worship the Lord. That would be a problem. And he tells us in Deuteronomy 8, he keeps hammering this point, and he gets to the end and says, you do that, if you forget the Lord when you get to the land, you'll perish. In the same way that everyone else that you're going in to make sure they perish, you will perish. 
And so a major red flag should go on when we, or go up when we come to this line. They forgot the Lord. Whoa! This is trouble. It should also be shocking to us, right? Because in Deuteronomy 8, actually, the way he describes it is like, it's sort of like, it doesn't make any sense. Because God says, I'm the one, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. I fed you manna in the wilderness. I gave you bread. I gave you water from a rock. I cared for you for 40 years. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be a foolish thing to turn to something else? I'm the one that can provide for you. Wouldn't it not be foolish to then look to the Baals who cannot do anything for you? So it should shock us on, on a, trying to think through why in the world would they do that? And at the same time, it makes perfect sense to us, doesn't it? Because the reality is we all feel that tug. Right? If you're born again, if you worship Jesus as the Christ and you're here today, there's something in you that says, I want to follow Christ because I know that's the path of joy. That's the path of freedom. To go after my own self is slavery. I know that. And yet, I constantly feel a tug. Because to, to find my hope and security in the world or things of the world, it feels tangible. And I don't have someone else over me telling me exactly what I have to do. I can, I can pursue my feelings and my own desires, and my flesh can be satisfied. Just like the Israelites, yeah? It makes perfect sense to us. Uh, David Paulison, uh, uh, the late... Uh, <laughs> the, the late biblical counselor. Um, Kirk said the late someone this week at a, at a preaching workshop, he said the late uh, pastor or whatever, and I was like, what's the late pastor? What does that mean? <laughs> Means they're dead, if, in case you didn't know. So <laughs> I, I was determined to use it soon. So David Paulson, when he wa was here with us, uh, he had a, these list of questions in terms of identifying what you truly worship. You know, it's easier to say, well, no, I worship God. Uh, and yet, at the same time, we functionally live as if these other things can provide us the hope and joy and satisfaction that we truly long for. So he's got this list. You can go online and find the diagnostic questions. Um, here, I'll, just, I'll just give you six of them. Uh, I adapted some of it, but uh, here's the first one. What do I use to comfort myself when things go bad or get difficult? We all have that. Hard days hard news, where do you go? Facebook? Instagram? Food? What do you run to? What will help you cope? Does God show up on that map? That's one indication. Who you run to? Who can actually provide you stability and comfort in that moment? Or another question, what preoccupies me, my mind, when I, when I have some free time, when I don't have anybody you know, fighting for my time and my attention, when I just have some free time, what do I daydream about? It doesn't mean you can't have any goals on earth or anything like that, but is, does God show up on that map? Is God a part of that? Or has God gotten separated to, well, yeah, I, I think about God when I'm with, you know, 
at the service with God's people or when I open up the Bible? Does God make it into those daydreaming times? That will help us know, like, what is truly deep inside what I long for? Question three, what makes me feel the most self-worth? What do I want to be known for? Or number four, what makes me feel most secure? What can calm my fears the best? What, what makes me feel like the world is safe? Is it financial? Relationship? Career? Housing? Food? What makes you feel that like life can be stable and that you can trust and release your grip from the world? Does God show up in that? Or number five, what, what do I really want? What do I really expect out of life? What will, what will make me happy? Well, it will make me happy if this person likes me. It will make me happy if I leave some sort of a legacy and I'm remembered. It will make me happy if I have this security. And we could come up with a long list. Does God come up on that list? I just need, if I have God, I have enough. Or last, what prayer, I feel like this one is very convicting. What prayer, if it was left unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? That's a searching question that's worth asking ourselves. You know, the reality is we're really not that different from these Israelites. Yes, it's, it's one thing to gather together and sing songs about the Lord, but how quickly are we tempted to forget him throughout the week? To look to other things of the world to actually provide us with what we feel like will sta- stabilize us or satisfy our hearts in the moment. Now what happens next in the story is, is that should be assumed. It's sort of, like, sort of obvious, right? Verse 8, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Now, if you've come out of Deuteronomy, Leviticus 26, that's sort of obvious. God told the people the promises and the curses of the law, if you, when you go into the land, if you obey me, you'll have good crops. I'll make sure that all the enemies on every side give you rest. They won't, they won't destroy, hurt you. They'll leave you alone. But if you disobey me, I'll make the sky like bronze and the ground like iron. You won't have crops. And if you do have crops, I'll call the others, the enemies, which we'll see later in the book, to come and eat your crops. And I'll call these enemies over to come and oppress you. All, especially Leviticus 26, making this very clear, all in loving discipline to call you back, to actually set you free from yourself. What you're doing chasing these other things is destroying you. And so I will, I will send discipline so that you are wooed back to me. So verse 8 makes total sense. Verse 9 then, the people... Respond, eventually, after eight years. 
Eight years, right? I mean, that, that, if you just do the math right now, that was 2014 for us. I mean, many of you weren't even here, right? I think we were at, we were at Pulaski High School. Eight years. I mean, some of you were in high school or junior high probably. That's crazy. That's a long time to live under the oppression of a double wicked king, yeah? That's a long time. But the people, verse 9, they finally respond and they cry out to the Lord. Now, it's been pointed out by many that this word being used for crying out to the Lord, it's, it's not the idea of repentance. It's just simply looking for relief from distress. You know, so they're not actually repenting before God. Uh, this, you know, I, actually, before I came to faith when I was 23, uh, I had several times where I would do this sort of thing. And I get myself in some sort of a trouble, and it's all of a sudden like, oh, yes, yeah, so let me pray. Uh, God, please... Uh, don't let me get in trouble. And I didn't get in trouble, and I'll come back next time. Right? It's, it's, it's using God like the rabbit's foot. Right? You, put them in, you put them in your pocket, you pull it out when you need them. There's, there's nothing here about an actual heart wanting to submit to God. It's just like I can use him uh, for my needs when I feel like these other things can't work. These other things won't satisfy, and I've run out of options. Then I guess we'll, we'll, we'll go to plan, plan M. Right? Let's put them down where where he doesn't really influence me. That, that's, what, that's what's going on here. And so when you get to there, verse 9, when, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, like this right here is the moment. Because the big question in the air is what is God going to do? You know, if I were telling the story to a child, it's at this moment, I would tell the kids, I would say, now, the people, not because they really were like, wanted to worship God, but they just wanted God to serve them, so they, they cried out to God for help because they couldn't fix the problem. And guess what happened? Guess how God responded? Now, God would be totally righteous and good to not respond, to let them, let them suffer under the, you know, the, you made that bed, you lay in it. That, that is your choice. You're the one that re- has rejected me. When you choose to turn and repent, may- maybe, you would be totally just. And yet, what does the text say? The Lord responds by raising up a deliverer for the people of Israel. And then he starts piling it on. The main actor in the rest of the text is God. Othniel is just the agent through which God, God works, right? Just listen how he piles it on. The Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and he, his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. So I actually think the reason why the author keeps this passage very simple without giving some narrative is we're, we're quickly, uh, easily distracted like, what's the squirrel? Check that out. Right? It's, ah, see, you're looking at the squirrel over there. Gotcha. No, I'm kidding. No, we're so quickly distracted, and he wants our eyes glued. No, 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 hold on. Don't get distracted by a narrative right now. I want you to hear that when God raised up a judge, God is the one that rescued his people. God was the one in control. God is the one who is merciful. Yes, the people forgot God quickly. 
Yet God did not forget his people. Because that's the God we worship. And the question we should ask is why? Why in, why in the world would God do that? I mean, there's, there's places, there's some wonderful places to go uh, in Scripture uh, that, to ask that question or to think about that. There's this uh, beautiful picture. Uh, this doesn't answer the question, but there's this beautiful illustration in Psalm 49, or Isaiah 49. The, the people of Israel at that time uh, were acting wickedly. God's telling them he's going to send them off into exile, um, bringing uh, judgment upon them, discipline upon them. But he will call them back. He will restore Israel. And so in the midst of this promise that he's going to rescue Israel, he's going to restore them, Zion, uh, Israel, responds. And she says, my Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And then God comes back with a picture. And he says, can a woman forget her nursing child so that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Now this picture, you've got to sit in it for a minute. He says, look, can a, a woman nursing her child could she somehow forget that child? Where did my baby go? Or let me just go do something else. No, she, there's no possible way she could forget the child. She's, her, she's got that mama love, right? Full of compassion for the child. And God says, yet it would be more likely that mom, that mom nursing the child would forget about the child nursing right now than I would ever forget you. Do you know that about your God? Yes, you forget God. Yes, you chase for other things other than God. And God will not forget his people. Or I love in Hosea, Hosea 11, uh, you get to see God. And for, for us, uh, I, I don't think God really wrestles like this, but for the sake of us, uh, with our limited capacities, our limited understanding, almost having this argument within himself. So the people are going, he tells them, I'm going to send you off to Assyria. It's going to be like Egypt. You're going to go off to Assyria, into exile. But he's going to bring the people back, and he, he says this to them. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's the northern tribe. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim are were two cities right by Sodom and Gomorrah that got, got destroyed in the fire and brimstone. How can I do this? My heart, this is God speaking, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim because I'm God and I'm not a man. I'm the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I love the answer to that question right there. Why does God have mercy and compassion on his people? Because he is God, and he's not like you and I. Your compassion runs out quick. 
My compassion runs out quick. And God says, the reason why I have compassion on my people, the reason why I will not forget them, is not because of them, because of me. Because I'm God. I'm not like you. So that's how I understand the passage to be set up. Simply saying, God's people quickly forgot God, but God never forgot his people. So how is this meant to land on us? I think, first of all, I think we're supposed to be sobered by it. I think a passage like this, it is meant to sober us. Because we all have a drift, right? We're tempted to drift to forget God. And if you don't feel it, you're probably already swimming downstream. The way the New Testament always talks about war within our soul, the lust which wages war against our soul. If it feels like war, that's probably a good sign. We all feel the drift. So it should sober us. It should put us on alert. Whoa, hold on a second. Sort of like, uh, you know, how, if you're in a woods class, you know, junior high, how do you make sure junior high boys, like, try to be careful in woods class? You know, you got saws and stuff and hammers, nails. Well, I know what our teacher did. They, they show pictures of, like, fingers sawed off and stuff. And I, nails, I remember this picture of a nail in an eyeball, you know. <laughs> See, you show them what happens if you are going to, if you're going to mess with this, this, uh, these tools in the wrong way, this could happen. And so it's meant to sober you, to be like, okay, I want to be careful. I think passages like this, they, we are meant to be sobered by them. Say, okay, hold on a second. Where am I tempted to drift away from God? I think we should all ask that question. It's probably going to be different for all of us. Where are we tempted to forget God? Secondly, though, I think not only should this sober us, but it should cause us to celebrate God's mercy. If, if we're sobered by it, it's because we recognize that we do, try, we do drift towards forgetting God. Maybe, maybe not to the extent that the Israelites did, but that's in us, this drift. And the more we see it, the more desperate we feel for the mercy and grace of God that makes us celebrate the mercy of God. Right? I mean, this, we'll be singing a song in a, in a few minutes here uh, with the Lord's Supper. His mercy is more. And that second line, what, 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 patience, what patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Is that not good news? Our sins are many, yet his mercy is more. That's what we need today. And that will cause us to celebrate the mercy of God. So I think we should be sobered by it, which I think causes us to celebrate God's mercy. And then when we see it, when we actually see that his mercy truly is more, then we can actually rest. We rest secure in the, the holding of God. Hebrews 13.5 Right? Keep, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Because he himself has said to you, and then he uses a double negative and a triple negative. In the Greek, uh, you know, we say a double negative, like uh, I, will, I won't not go to the store. That means a positive. Well, in like the Greek, if you use a double negative and a triple positive, it's, always, it's just piling it on. It's emphasizing it. 
Because the reason why you can be content with what you have is because I will never, ever leave you. Nor will I ever, ever, ever forsake you. She's trying to pile it on. I will never let go of my people. And we should ask, why? How how do we know that? How, How can we trust that? Well, Romans 8 answers that for us, doesn't it? How, how will not he who did not spare his only son for us also give us all things? Because ultimately, somebody was forgotten for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is Jesus cries it out from the cross. Because somebody took that for us. Somebody took the judgment that we deserve for our forgetfulness of, of running towards other things so that we know that we will never be forsaken by God. We will never be forgotten. That's why G- when Jesus says, I hold you in my hand and my Father holds you in his hand and no one will snatch you out, he means it. And he proved it with his blood. He purchased you, follower of Christ, believer. God will never let you go. So first we're sobered by it, then we celebrate it, then we rest securely. And then, I think in then, we actually strive forward to pursue holiness. Yeah? See, when, when, when it's actually good news, following God and obeying God and keeping a remembrance of God becomes something that we want to do, to joyfully pursue. It doesn't become this like frustrating thing like, ah. Only my, I can't just do it with only my pinky. It's, I, I, wanna, I want to pursue the Lord here. It's going to be a battle, but it actually will be fuel for us. I, I, love this, I, love the, I don't know where the illustration comes from. I, I love the illustration of thinking about the Christian, uh, the Christian as a train, right? The, the, like we're the, the caboose or the, the train car, whatever you call them. And there's the train tracks. The train tracks are, is the, the commands of God how God commands us to live, right? Go from point A to point B. The problem is the tracks don't have any power to move the train, right? The the tracks tell the train where to go, but it doesn't have power to get the train there. You have to put some sort of fuel into the train in order to get it to move. And it has to be the right fuel. You can't just, you know, pour soda in the train or something like that, right? It needs to be the fuel that it was designed for. And we were designed to run on the fuel of the gospel, the, the reality that by the death, burial, res, burial, resurrection of Christ, we have been brought near to God, we've been given new hearts, we've been given the Holy Spirit, and we are now empowered to pursue holiness. And it's the more we pour in that reality into us that we will actually have energy and power and joy to run the race. So that's where I see uh, in this passage, the people quickly forgot God, but God did not forget his people. Let us be people that remember that, be sobered by that, celebrate that, rest securely in that, and then strive to remember the Lord. Now, if you're a follower of Christ today, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, This is a time to let God uh, use this illustration to remind us with these physical elements, yes, Christ died for you. I will not forget you. I will not forsake you. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come, grab the elements, and return to your seat. Uh, again, this is, we say it each week, this is not about uh, perfection, about, but about direction. 
if you if that is true for you, we'd love for you to participate. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ, you do not worship him as the Son of God who died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead, uh, or you're living in unrepentant sin, uh, then we ask you not to partake. Uh, but if you're a follower of Christ, stumbling in the faith, uh, yet striving forward though you are, uh, we ask you to come. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news, that though we are prone to forget God, God did not forget us. Somebody was forgotten in our place. The Lord Jesus took the full wrath of God for you who worship him. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is for you. At that same supper, Jesus took the cup and proclaimed that this cup represents the new covenant that his blood was inaugurating. The new covenant tells us that we have been given new hearts, a heart that, uh, taking out the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh that, that beats to the same drum as God's heart. And he's given us the Holy Spirit so we can actually walk in the commandments of God. Yes, sin feels powerful. It screams and shouts to condemn us, tells us we don't have any power. And brothers and sisters, let the cup remind us that the new covenant has come. It is true. All who worship Christ have new hearts and the Holy Spirit. And we can leave here today weak yet powerful in the cross. For the Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let us stand and pray together. God, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, that just because you are faithful, not because of us, just simply because you are good, you are righteous, you are merciful. Help us now, God, as we go uh, through the rest of our day to really bank on the finished work of Christ on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen.